When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast done in partnership with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. Adoniram Judson was the 19th century version of an American celebrity. People flocked to listen to his tales of being one of the first missionaries to enter the Kingdom of Burma. Attendees wanted to hear of his mission in the Buddhist Kingdom. Judson was reportedly uncomfortable with the attention. These Baptist missions to Burma flopped among the Buddhist majority, but won converts among its minorities, the Karen, the Kachin, and others. Alexandra Kalyanidis covers these missions in Baptizing Burma, Religious Change in the Last Buddhist Kingdom, her latest book. Alexandra Kalyanidis is an associate professor in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte, where her teaching focuses on Buddhism. Dr. Kalyanidis serves as associate editor of Material Religion, served as managing editor of Tricycle, the Buddhist Review, and served as editor of the Asian Tradition section of Marginalia Review of Books, a Los Angeles Review of Books channel. Today, Alex and I talk about missions to Burma, their success among the country's minority groups, and how Christian faith became wrapped in the country's formation of new identities. So, Alex, thank you for coming on the show today to talk about baptizing Burma. You know, I guess for my, my first question, um, why did you decide to study these missions in the first place? What was it about um, these attempts to, to spread Christianity in Burma um, that was so interesting? Well, well, thanks for having me. I started being interested in this project as an undergraduate student, really. I had studied abroad in India and had a chance to go to Burma uh, through a Buddhist studies program. And so I spent a month in Burma way back in the day and studied nuns and Buddhism. I was interested in gender, but I was really fascinated by the country, by Myanmar, and I always wanted to go back. After college, I got a job working at a Buddhist magazine, Tricycle, the Buddhist Review. And so I had gone from studying Buddhism and Asian cultures very academically to going to this magazine in New York where there was a lot of different ways of understanding Buddhism. You know, we had artists and we had people talking about mindful parenting, and it was this whole new way of understanding Buddhism. And so I decided when I went to graduate school that I wanted to study religious studies. I had studied Asian and Middle Eastern cultures before that. And I want to study religious studies. And I wanted to not only study Asian religions, but also American religious history because of this experience. And when I was in graduate school, I found the writings of one of these missionaries, Emily Chubbuck Judson, who was the third wife of this founding missionary. And she was fascinating to me. And she had spent all this time in Burma and wrote about Buddhism. And so I decided I wanted to learn more. And I found her letters and other people's letters and diaries in the archives and just became fascinated by this history because it was very different from things that I had thought about before, sort of Western encounters with Buddhism. And they were there so early. So that's where I kind of came to it. It was kind of circuitous route, but I uh, really just became really interested through the archival materials of what it was like for these, these missionaries of the early 1800s to be in 
this Buddhist country to be the first Americans living in a in a Buddhist place. Um, so that's where I found myself fascinated. So who I mean, who were these people that decided to be kind of the first Americans to live um, in Burma? And specifically, talk about let's talk about the the Judsons, who are kind of like the 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 prime examples of this, I guess. But but who were the kinds of people that decided to to make this journey? Yeah, so the first one was Adoniram Judson, and he ended up going with his wife, Anne Judson. And they were just young people. I mean, they were in their 20s. They're from Massachusetts, where you are right now. So they were there right near where you are, Malden, Massachusetts. Uh, Adoniram Judson was born in 1788, so not that long after the Revolutionary War. So this is the early republic. Anne Judson was born a year later, and they were pretty well educated. He ended up in a seminary and then became fascinated with India, this romantic idea of India with this history and this literature. People were starting to study Sanskrit manuscripts. And in the early Republic, basically by way of England, they started learning more and more about Indian history. And there was this idea that they were obsessed with, that there was that India had long ago had a flourishing Christian population and Christian teachings, and that in Sanskrit manuscripts, there were these teachings of Christ. And so there was this idea that you could go and sort of return Christianity to India. This was fascinating to them. So they ended up leaving. And when they left, they were the first foreign missionaries. They were the first people to leave American shores and evangelize abroad. And they ended up living and dying in Burma. And their life was sensational. They met kings. They were imprisoned. They lost children. Uh, Anne Judson died very young in her 30s. Their, their baby at the time was only two. So they had this big life. He ended up translating the first um, the Bible into Burmese. And he was the first one to do that. He did an English-Burmese translation, uh, English-Burmese dictionary. So they were these people that became really famous in the American press. They were like celebrities, 19th century celebrity couple. And they were really famous then. And they also became really important to the story of the mission. So both in Myanmar today, when people talk about Baptist Christianity, which is still very popular religion in Burma, people talked about these missionaries. I myself had not heard of them before I started my studies. So I was really fascinated to start learning about them and then also learn how they are still people that people are talking about within Baptist communities. Yeah. And so what you asked about what brought them to Burma. So they wanted to go to India. They ended up going, finally landing in India, but they get to India and the British thought they would probably cause trouble. So they didn't want them. And the local communities weren't especially interested. And so they weren't allowed passage into India. So they became stranded in a port in Madras. Anne was pregnant at the time. I think she was like 25 and she was pregnant and they basically needed to settle somewhere. So they're there in this port city. And there's, as the story goes, this one three-masted sailing vessel, the Georgiana, and it's going across the Bay of Bengal to Rangoon, the city now known as Yangon. And so they kind of end up in Burma by accident and they sort of launch this history of Christianity. And one thing, I mean, one thing you note is that um, the missionaries get a lot more traction with ethnic minority groups like the Karen, the Kachin, um, and basically get nowhere with the with the with the with the Burmese majority, um, the Bamar. I think. Um, what was it about these minority groups that, I guess, made them more receptive to um, to these missions? It depends on who you ask. If you ask the Karen, they would say that they were already a people of God, a people of a holy book. That this was something that was 
there's part of their particular community's history and legacy long before the missionaries arrived, but that they had forgotten it. They had lost their book. They had lost their written language. They had lost their connections. And so when the missionaries came with their Bibles and their teachings, the Quran said, oh, we recognize this. This is something that is your sort of, that was prophesied that this would oh, be right. returned to us. Because your book mentions this, this legend or, or well, I guess legend or myth or story of them coming with like, said, oh, we had, we actually had this book for 10 years <laughs> um, or something. Well, yeah, they had some print material, so they had sort of had contact. But they also, before that, they said, we had this lost book a long time ago. And there was a prophecy that it would be returned to us. And then the prophecy is interesting. It changes over time, of course. It was an oral history. And then we have records of it starting in the 19th century. But yeah, they said, we had a book. It was just lost. And now you're returning to us. There was this prophecy that a foreign, you know, a brother from across the water would come and return this to us. So for them, it wasn't sort of adopting a foreign religion, but rather reclaiming a lost, a lost tradition. But for other groups, there were different, there were different reasons why they were more um, interested in Baptist Christianity. Like you said, the mainstream Bamar. Buddhist community was not interested that mission was basically a total failure with them. But for other groups, um, they had all different kinds of reasons. Some of them were, you know, were perhaps socioeconomic, you know, there was a way that they were able to connect to traditions and to forms of, of literacy and social networks um, after a long period of time not being included in sort of mainstream educational practices and society practices of status revolving around Buddhism, because this was a, a Buddhist kingdom with a, a Buddhist king who really saw as sort of his job to maintain and purify Buddhism for the, his subjects and the majority. And so the people in the sort of mainstream society had this really strong association with Buddhism and also were high levels of literacy and their own relationship with monastic schools and so on. But these other groups like the Karen, the Kachin, the Chin were marginalized. And so they were at, had a, were at a remove from mainstream Buddhist society for the sort of longer history of Burmese empire building and, you know, royal uh, practices. And so the, Christianity was very appealing to them, but not just for you know economic reasons. I mean, the story of a, a powerful God with the ability to forgive sins, this really, really stuck with some of these minority groups. So how did these groups kind of adapt these Christian ideas, these, these Christian iconography for, for their own kind of context? I mean, I guess, how, how, did, how did the ideas in Christ Christianity change in this, um, with these new groups? Um, yeah, it changed in a lot of ways. And I don't want to give the impression that there was like this one discrete Christianity yeah, yeah, that yeah. set, you know, Christian ideas and practices and then these local ones, you know, because religions are always, you know, adapting and changing and being syncretic or whatever. But, you know, there, there were some interesting ways that things changed. And one of them, I think, is actually comes from the perhaps the American side in that there was this one missionary, Marilla Baker, Baker Ingalls, who was seen actually as someone who could convert people from the Bamar majority. She could even convert monks was the story. And so there was this interest in her mission because she was successful where everyone else seemed to have failed. And she was a solitary missionary. Her husband died early on. So she was this independent female missionary in Southern Burma and Tonza. And she ends up inheriting some land that has one of these spirit trees, you know, they call them gnats in Burma, these spirit trees where people would go to make offerings and to ask for favors and so on. And she writes about how she converted this tree. So rather than just, you know, telling people to leave it alone or even chopping it down, she ends up hanging up 
biblical verses, a picture of Queen Victoria. She even hangs a, a poster of a, an advertisement for a Western medicine. This, this Western medicine is, is hung on the wall. And so she ends up, you know, really taking on the materials of the Burmese, you know, religious landscape and sort of making Baptist Christianity, a for, you know, and a sort of indigenous tradition of its own, a local tradition. And so taking sort of the materials, but then you have it the other way too. I write uh, later in the book about when I was traveling in Burma in the 21st century, I was there in 2013. So this is jumping ahead to the 200 year anniversary. But in their churches, they would have these very anglicized versions of Jesus Christ, like the Solomon painting of Jesus looking very white. And so this idea of sort of of really wanting to promote an Anglo-American version of Christianity for a whole host of their own reasons, you know, sort of seeing that as perhaps a legit representation, but also seeing important powers in connecting to this form of Western white Christianity in a certain kind of way or a global Christianity. So you see some really, that was the most fun part about working on this project. You see these surprising things. Like I was surprised to find this missionary with her own spirit tree, you know, and these, you know, these converts with all these paintings of Jesus and the Judsons hanging in their churches. So you do find these interesting ways where things that you associate with different parts of the world kind of find their place into other parts of the world. You know, you, you mentioned, you mentioned very briefly, uh, in first answer, kind of the 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 British weren't particularly happy with some of the stuff going on. That's that's why the Judsons had problems in India. Um, how did the British feel about all this activity? <laughs> well, you know what's interesting, and I didn't know this till I started studying. The Americans were there before British colonization, so they get there, you know, in eighteen thirteen. The British don't start annexing Lower Burma until they win the first Anglo-Burmese war, which Adoniram Judson, he was working with the king as a translator to negotiate the Treaty of Yandabo that ended that war. So the Americans were there and they were more familiar with sort of the Burmese side of the conflict. And so when the British get there, there's some tension, you know, and of course, you know, the early missionaries had, you know, fathers and grandfathers who perhaps even fought in the Revolutionary War. So there was some, some tension. But um, as we see in other parts of the world with British colonization, that there's also a way that the British also saw uh, value in what the missionaries were doing as sort of easing their own uh, path toward colonization. And so the British were especially um, appreciative in promoting the schools that the missionaries did. They thought the missionaries were especially good at their at their schools. American missionaries had a reputation for being good at speaking the local languages, so they appreciated them for that. But there were all these tensions. And I think the British kind of thought the the missionaries were, were rather righteous. And, you know, the Americans thought that, you know, that the British were like drinking too much and giving Christianity a bad name, you know, so there were these tensions. But ultimately, they ended up, for the most part, um, kind of coordinating their efforts in the country, I think. So what I mean, so what were the kinds of arguments that the missionaries used to um, to convert these groups? Um, I mean, I, I note I note the uh, what is it? There, there's the there's the tin statue of the dog that one missionary tried to use to, uh, I guess, reveal the the problems with iconography. And and, and we can get into maybe how, what what how we feel about that later. But um, but 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 what were some of the like uh, ways that the missionaries actually? converted people and converted them away from, you know, Buddhist practices or other practices. Yeah, that dog, that dog actually belonged to that same missionary, Marilla Baker Ingalls. She had that dog and she said she used it to teach people that, 
you know, statues didn't have real life in them. And that, that the missionaries kind of, some of the writings give you the impression that they really thought that they were going to go to Burma and say, look, you're, you're worshiping this Buddha statue and you're saying prayers, but he's actually this long go dead guy. And what are you thinking? There's no life there. And they would, you know, topple a, a statue even in some cases in, in the most violent versions and show, look, there's no God in there. But of course the local people were well aware of the fact that there wasn't like a, like a hiding little man inside those statues, you know? And so those kinds of arguments for the most part, I think failed the way when you read about convert um, experiences and the way their responses to, to missionary arguments, the ones that seemed to really be the most powerful were the ones about an all powerful God that could forgive sins, that you could be forgiven and you could have the salvation. You know, there were these Buddhist ideas already in the country about karma and wholesome acts leading to wholesome consequences and unwholesome acts leading to unwholesome consequences. And that over, you know, many lifetimes you could, you know, store up your merit, you could do good things, do good, do good acts and improve your position. And eventually maybe you could ordain as a monk and then maybe you could then be totally liberated. Um, So these new teachings that in fact, that there was a God, I mean, of course there were gods, gods and demigods and spirits in, you know, the Buddhist religious imagination and the religious lives of these people. But the idea that you had like one powerful God and with these teachings of love and forgiveness and that it was a universal tradition, just like Buddhism, this idea that these this, this could be for everybody uh, was, I think, very powerful for, for some people. And that also with Baptist Christianity in particular, in the Baptist tradition, you are you end up be, being baptized as an adult. You go forth. It's not something you do. It's not infant baptism. You don't just sprinkle some water on a little baby, but instead when you are when you really are ready and you have this faith and this conviction and this relationship with God, and then you're born again. And so the idea that you could be born again in this lifetime and you could be saved by this powerful God, it had this appeal and had this contrast with waiting for another life, you know, reincarnating in another life or multiple lives over many times and being more individually responsible for your own salvation. So one one thing you do in guess research, research in your book is that you uh, is that you join this tour that kind of goes along the path that the missionaries took and and you know one one wait what moment for me in the book was when you visit is when is when you get to the town of Amherst um, you know just for uh, just 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 as a coincidence I'm doing this interview from Amherst Massachusetts right now and I looked it up I know they're different Amherst and it's a different it's a different thing. Um, but first of all, I mean, why is there an Amherst in Burma? And then I wonder if you might kind of pivot from there to talk about uh, this tour that you were a part of. Yeah, I think that's a good way of really recognizing that both places have been colonized by the British and that, you know, there's some family name and like somewhat random location in England that ends up, you know, over time through these colonial histories, ends up naming different places. Yeah. So that what that name is not a local name that actually is is after the uh, first Anglo-Burmese war in 1824, 1826, they end up uh, end up annexing Lower Burma and then renaming this area Amherst. And that's where that's where Judson goes after 
after the the war, after he's imprisoned, and that's where he finds that his wife had died. Uh, And so it becomes an important part of the story of the mission. And that story really shaped this tour I went on. It was 2013, so it's 200 years. I just got lucky while I was studying this in graduate school. It happened to be coincide with this anniversary. And the Baptist church is really into anniversaries. They had 100-year celebrations of this mission, 150-year celebrations. And, And in the early 2010s, Myanmar was going through these different kinds of democratic transitions, and it was more opened up to this kind of thing. And so the timing just worked out. And I got some funding and was able to join these Baptists, um, American Baptists from the American Baptist Historical Society on this tour of these sites, including the sites where Adoniram was imprisoned and where Anne died and where they had their first church and where, where the converts were. And we moved around the country. And I had grown, I did not grow up myself as Baptist. Um, I grew up in a, in a, in the Northeast. And so there were as many Baptists now I'm in, in North Carolina. So there's a lot more uh, Baptist communities, but I didn't have a lot of interactions with, with living Baptists. I've been studying them, you know, in graduate school historically. So this was the first time I really got to spend time with living Baptist communities, both in, in Myanmar and the community of the, you know, pilgrims, they were in a way coming from the States. And it really taught me a lot about how these people understood these connections and, and how important the idea of these missionaries were and the fact that they were certain, almost like martyrs who were in heaven and that people would eventually one day all join together in heaven with these people and the real connection to these figures. I was really curious about the legacy of the tour and um, it was really extraordinary, uh, extraordinary opportunity. So, I mean, obviously it's been, it's been centuries since these, since these first missions. Um, and, uh, how have these religious dynamics changed in today's Burma or today's Myanmar, kind of whatever name you prefer to use? Uh, I mean, you note that, that, I mean, we note that the, there's a lot of success amongst, um, the minority communities, a lot of whom are currently in armed struggle against the, against the Burmese state, uh, for, sovereignty, independence, what have you. Um, but but how have these religious dynamics kind of changed in today's Burma in terms of kind of who is Christian, who is Buddhist, um, and so on? Well, Baptist Christianity is, is still or became since then, and actually even after the missionaries, foreign missionaries were expelled after independence and the country started being isolated in the middle of the 20th century, even when foreign left missionaries weren't even there, Baptist Christianity continued to spread uh, in different communities in different parts of, of the country. And so today, Baptist Christianity is the most popular religion next to Buddhism, next to mainstream Theravada Buddhism. And so, you know, we see ways that the sort of, that Christianity continues to be an important part of the religious landscape. I am no expert in contemporary uh, Burmese politics, but I will say that, you know, thinking about it, because I was writing, finishing the book during the coup and the coup of uh, 2021, and thinking about real the legacy of this mission, because, you know, I went into the book, and I, this is, I didn't want this book to be an apology for the for the missionaries. I didn't, you know, it wasn't a way of sort of, you know, I was, I was looking at all these different kinds of dynamics, and I wanted to be really sensitive to the way that they, you know, supported the violence of imperialism, but also to think more complicated ways about why people convert and local convert communities, not just being sort of the victims of this imperial history. And so I wanted to think about all of these different things and really let the sources sort of 
of teach me the history in a way that was different from a kind of story of, you know, a country that was always Buddhist. And then the, the British come in and mess things up. And, you know, that it was this complicated place with different people and so on. And so I was thinking about the ways that certain patterns continue. One of them, you know, Burmese Buddhist imperialism or nationalism now, this idea, you know, this history of the Burmese empire, and this was during the Kambong dynasty that my stuff, you know, that there, there was a form of of, of Buddhist imperialism that was, you know, well underway then. And that I think, you know, is certainly related to the kinds of imperialism that we see as the kind of nationalism we see now. Um, and then also, you know, the missionaries for whatever intentions they had, they went there and they did a lot of the work that the, the Brit- British picked up on of saying, okay, this is a discrete group. This is their name. We're going to make a script for their language. We're going to make a written form of this language, you know, and sort of dividing up the, groups of people and sort of, you know, this kind of, we think about sort of anthropology, you know, in the late 19th century doing this, but this classification of different people and that they ended up making these boundaries around groups of people in a way that has endured and almost is imagined as natural, you know, these constructing these boundaries and saying, oh, these are these linguistic divisions and these people are this way and these people are that way. And that, that the legacy of that is that it continues to uh, cause these problems and these divisions between people. So in some ways I see more of sort of patterns that can, that continue um, in a way. I will say though, even when you re- read about some of these, these Burmese monarchs, there was a way that they were also interested in allowing a certain form of religious pluralism. You know, they, when, when Judson went to the king and said, can we, can we missionize? He said, well, leave these people alone, but there's a way that you could go to this part of the country and you could stay over the side, like the Portuguese and so on. And so, so even though there was sort of the inside group and a sort of privileged majority. There are some periods of Burmese history, there was more um, acceptance of different people and more, um, you know, trade relations and so on and, and cultural connections. And now we see these, these divisions that are so horrible, you know, we think about genocide and ethnic violence and so on. And so, you know, I see them connected, but of course, you know, the history of the British colonial period is, you know, has so much to do with all of this. And then, you know, so much more in terms of, you know, what's happening in the 20th century, socioeconomically, politically, and so on. You know, you know, to cycle back to this point, kind of go to cycle back to the history. I mean, you note kind of um, in one of your chapters, how, uh, how a lot of these kind of minority groups, Christianity and, and being part of that, being, being part of this group, help them kind of push back against kind of the dominant, the dominant religious force in in Burma at the time, um, and I wonder if you might kind of talk a bit more about that, about about how again how that got wrapped into um, these kind of political conversations at the time between these different groups. Yeah, for some of you know, in some of the archival materials, you'll have people express, expressly saying like we weren't allowed to study books under you know we couldn't go to the monastery we want to study with you because we want to learn books we want to learn this stuff we want to explore new religious worlds we really want to do this you know some of it just for all kinds of curious you know curiosity but then also like we also want to associate with people that are going to give us access to powers that are both material and immaterial you know and before i started writing this book and i was starting to read other scholarship on this, there was a a way that a lot of scholarship had described ethnic Christian communities as being just very pragmatic, you know, that they wanted to find ways to feed their family, protect their villages, you know, by learning English, by learning Western trades and so on. Um, And I I think that there's, there's definitely truth to that. There was a certain kind of strategy involved in Christian affiliation. 
But what I was surprised to find was that that wasn't just it. You know, of course, that these communities, just like the missionaries and the, the Buddhists, were really curious about questions of salvation and the attributes of God. It's, and, you know, big questions about cosmologies, how, you know, is the earth round or flat or, you know, what is the nature of heaven and hell and all this kind of thing. And so you find these communities having this, you know, the full range of human experiences, just like everyone else. And I know that sounds ridiculous, but I just think that sometimes people say, oh, you know, these people converted for for these economic reasons. And it sort of leaves out these um, more complex relationships to doctrines, theologies, salvations, and so on. And so I don't know if that really <laughs> answers your question, but that's sort of where I became really fascinated and trying to think about this, this, all these people and how they were trying to understand these colliding empires, like real empires, the British and the Burmese, and then the American, and then these religious worlds and imaginations and sort of how different people related differently to the different opportunities and challenges that they faced as a result. You know, I, I have, I have one more Question. Um, and, you know, I mean, it, and yes, I'm coming at this from a from a 21st century perspective. Um, but some of the arguments the missionary used to kind of to kind of poke at Buddhism, especially particularly the whole like, you know, the statue has no power, really. Right. I'm like, oh, come on, really? <laughs> like rolling my like 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 seriously, guys. Um, but also, I mean, you know, I think I think today uh, a lot of people do connect kind of a lot of missionary work with, you know, colonialism, imperialism, you know, part of this like civilizing mission that is uh, problematic. Um, and that's not to say that, that, that the Burmese missions were like that too, but, but, you know, given your study of, of these missions in Burma at the time, um, what do you think is the best way to think about missionary work um, in the 21st century, um, maybe or at least a lot of these kind of all of this this missionary work um, throughout the 18th and 19th centuries. What's the best way to think about that work today? Well, I do think that we still have to connect it with colonialism and imperialism, like you do. I think I know that a lot of people think that way, um, especially people who have a certain kind of education and know sort of histories of colonialism. I do, but I, I still think it's important to remind ourselves that missionaries were supporting those things, whether they wanted to or not, or intended to or not. You know, so I, I still I, I think that's worth keeping in mind. If anything, I think what is a different way to look at it is looking at local forms of Christianity, not as limited to that story, right? That there's it's not like it's not like their only reason these people are praising God or baptizing, um, you know baptizing themselves and doing these kinds of things or seeking baptism is because of, you know, these 19th century dynamics of who was in charge, you know? And so to really think, and I, and I, I really do want to think about religion in this more capacious way of accessing powers, both material and immaterial. And so when we think about missionary work and we think about these people, and, you know, when we think about these, these first missionaries that were over there, that they were young people with real, you know, um, curiosity about local cultures, you know, there wasn't, they weren't only violent. And so they had this way. And even people that are like us from the United States who find ourselves traveling in different parts of Asia that were, you know, sometimes you want to set yourself apart. You're like, I'm not here as a missionary. Oh, I'm here as a scholar, or I'm not here as a hippie trying to, you know, like, 
become enlightened. You know, we have all these ways that we imagine, but there's there's a lot of connections between these early missionaries and their fascination with other parts of the world and what brought them to parts of the world. And so to think about you know, in what ways there's the, that kind of travel and interest in cosmopolitan settings can be wonderful and where humans flourish in those things. And then how there are these still these patterns of violence and oppression. And I think we have to try and think about both. And I think we can, we could hold, we could hold open the idea that people are experiencing salvation and transformation at the same time that people are still caught up in patterns of oppression from imperialism and colonialism. Well, I think that's a great place uh, to end our interview with Alexandra um, Kalionidis, um, author of Baptizing Burma, Religious Change in the Last Buddhist Kingdom. Uh, Alex, I actually have two final questions for you. Sure, Nick. Which are, Give them uh, to me. Which are, um, where can people find your work? Uh, not just this book, but, but all of your work. And uh, what's next for you? What do you think the next project might be? Ooh, those are fun questions. So people could find my book is through Columbia University Press. It's also available in other places pretty easily on the internet. Um, and you could find other works of mine. There are a lot of my articles are freely available. I have a website through my university. I'm at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. And so there's, you know, a faculty page there that lists some of my articles. I really welcome it's it's really exciting to talk to you because you write a book and it goes out in the world and you're like, I don't know who's gonna read this, you know. And so I really welcome anyone who happens to read it. And I know there's not gonna be tons of you. So if anyone does want to reach out to me, I would love to hear what they think about that work or anything I've done. Uh, my new project is on natural resources. I ended up working, there's a new exhibition your listeners should know about, an exhibition at the British Museum on Burma, from Burma to Myanmar. It's the first in a really long time that the British Museum has featured the country. And they're doing this wonderful exhibition curated by the fabulous Alexandra Green. We have the same first name, but she is much more accomplished and wonderful historian of art and curator of Southeast Asian artifacts there. And so I helped with the exhibition book, a chapter on natural resources because of some other work I'd done on the teak industry, like the wood. Anyway, so I want to kind of continue with this idea of material culture and history, but I'm really interested in extractive industries. So because Burma itself is this land of incredible wealth, you know, you have teak, you have rubies, you know, you have opium, you have all of these things. And so that's where, that's where I'm going next. I don't know what it's going to, where it will take me, but I'm excited to do a new project. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com and find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find many more author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. We're on all our favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week... Join us for an interview with Toby Matheson, author of The Caliph and the Imam, The Making of Sunnism and Shiism. But before then, Alex, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, thanks, Nick. It was fun.